Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my co-host, Brother Axel Savari, and today's question is that of atheism. Can you be an atheist and become a Freemason? And why are we discussing this? Because there's a long history of myths and legends and conspiracy theories that tie back to the root of masonry and whether one can be an atheist, whether one cannot be an atheist, um, both sides kind of arguing different things on this subject. So we're going to explore the history of this and the philosophical ramifications of allowing or disallowing atheists into a Masonic Lodge. Well, it's a very interesting question because, like we were discussing before the podcast, that, you know, if, if, if somebody that's not a Mason knows anything about Masonry, probably what they know is that they require some kind of a belief in God, and that that's one of the requirements for joining the fraternity. But people might not be aware that one of the longest debates in Masonry itself is actually over this question what it means to have a belief in God, if Masonry is affiliated with a particular religion, if an atheist or somebody that doesn't believe in a, in a religious view of God or, or a supreme being can actually even become a Mason, whether it's peculiar to a single religion or if it can accept all religions. Um, this debate's been going on for almost about three centuries now. Well, beyond that, depending on your frame of reference here, and I'm talking about conspiracy theorists uh, or extremely religious people, they think that Masons are all atheists because they're devil worshippers, which they see as the same thing. So it really, you know, it, yeah. it, the frame of reference here is pretty important. I think the common person off the street probably has heard something about the requirement of supreme being. If you watch too much YouTube videos on Freemasonry, you the probably, requirement of a belief in Lucifer. <laughs> exactly, which is essentially atheism because mm. of the rejection of, of the Judeo-Christian God. So, you know... I think this argument, this debate, we kind of need to go back to uh, 1717 at least because that's the formation of the Grand Lodge. And we have a gentleman uh, named Anderson, John Anderson, who f writes up the first constitutions of Freemasonry. And he writes something very interesting here that kind of frames this argument. And it will be this point that is argued by Masonic scholars for the next 300 years. So this is a quote from Anderson's Constitutions, probably one of the first and, well, one of the first and one of the most important Masonic documents. And it goes, quote, A Mason is obliged by his tenure to obey the moral law, and if he rightly understands the art, he will never be a stupid atheist or, or an irreligious libertine. But though in ancient times Masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, Yet it is now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree, leaving their particular opinions to themselves, that is, to be good men and true, or men of honor and honesty, by whatever denomination or persuasion they may, they may be distinguished, whereby masonry becomes the center of union and the means of conciliating true friendship among persons that must have remained at a perpetual distance. This is a great paragraph you just read here. Was it, I think it outlines a couple things for us to discuss here today 
in defining the regulations of who can become a Mason. I think the first one let's talk about is a stupid atheist. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, it's kind of a funny way of putting it, right? A mm-hmm. stupid atheist. And so there's a, there's, it's implying that if you're an atheist, you're stupid. So what is really an atheist? You know, and I think we need to get into the meaning of this word. It's a Greek word, right? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. atheist, mm-hmm. which is you know, no without God, God without gods. God, yeah. Uh, which is the opposite of being a theist, which is a belief in mm-hmm. you know a supreme being. So you you know, basically, these are the two big camps: atheist and um, theist. And then the third camp I want to throw in there is the agnostics, because I think there's there's a there's a place for them, those people that essentially say, well, I don't know. I don't have evidence one way or the other, therefore I don't know, and I leave the possibility of both being true. So you, you have you have right, left, and center. Well, it's interesting. I think that the uh, Masonic case against atheism um, that was kind of like that's being put forward here by Anderson is, is really the same argument that was being had with the origins of atheism itself. So it, like you said, it comes from, from ancient Greece and the atheos or the people without the gods, um, kind of stem from the argument in Greece as to whether or not morality could be derived from natural law or that natural law and morality could only be derived from a belief in the gods. So there were these two camps, and, and, and the atheists in, in Greece were definitely in the minority, but there were people in ancient Greece who said that natural law was not a result of the gods, that, that the moral laws by which their society was organized could be derived from reasoning things out and did, weren't necessarily handed down by the gods. The majority of the philosophers of ancient Greece argued against this idea, but there were some notable ancient Greek atheists, and that's where the term comes from, is this old kind of argument as to whether or not morality requires something beyond human consciousness. And I think that's what's that's what he's talking about, um, that like all Masons are obligated to obey the moral law. The argument's kind of silly because they kind of overlap one another. I mean, the question is, what do we what is a god? You know, when we when we say God, are we saying that it's a it's a man on a throne like Zeus, you know, throwing down lightning bolts and sleeping with uh, the the daughters of man, or is God a more philosophical concept which transcends sort of these sort of anthropomorphic ideas? And in that sense, natural law and the concept of God become more the same thing. Mm-hmm. So. I think some of these arguments can get a little silly. They're almost a little semantical in mm-hmm. nature. You know, I to me, when we're talking about God, we're talking about a concept, and that concept you can materialize that concept as a person or you know a being or some sort of entity. Um, but a God can just be the laws of nature, can it? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there's this all-pervading sort of consciousness in the universe that regulates. The laws of physics and chemistry and biology and, and, and all natural law isn't that itself a god? Oh, absolutely, and I, and I don't think that that viewpoint was necessarily missing from the Greek religious discussion at the time. Like we often think of our ancestors as like you know believing in all these like basically like comic book characters that ruled over their life and controlled the weather. And while I think you know there have always been literalists in every age. I think that's kind of the straw man of, of like militant atheism is to be like, well, these people just believed in these superhuman characters that lived up in the clouds and that was their only conception of religion. But I think like, you know, we can, as from reading ancient Greek philosophy, we can tell that their thought process was, was pretty deep and pretty involved and, and capable of like 
the same kind of analysis that we can we can make now, which is that like these represent elements of the human psyche. Because if you look at the stories of, of, of the old gods, they're very human in their attributes. They, they do human things. They're, they're, it's almost like they're describing like ways of being in the world and that they're like personifications of these concepts that you're talking about. So I think the debate has always been more subtle than it's been made out to be in the modern day. Well, I think the stories are there for a reason. You know, I think humanity has been evolving over thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, millions of years, right? And in that, you know, our ability to read and write and to comprehend abstract ideas have also evolved. So I think in the ancient world, you have stories of um, these gods almost acting like human beings to some degree, but having greater powers. But those are stories, and I think those stories were meant to teach people a moral lesson. Same thing with Christianity, or at least the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Old Testament, God is very much like a God that you would see in Rome or Greece mm-hmm. or Egypt. Uh, but the New Testament, God becomes extremely abstract. You know, God is love, as John says. So I think in this regard, we as we evolve, mm-hmm. the concept of God is evolving. You know, at one point in the ancient past, God were, were monolithic you know, formations. They were stones. Uh, at one point, they were the stars. And, you know, now our concept of, of God is more philosophical. So I think as we evolve, God evolves. This, to mm-hmm. me, this is, is very important. Like, God isn't sort of a fixed point. As The more we uncover, the grander God becomes. Well, and I think, I think this is what he's referring to by a stupid atheist, is that the idea that, like, when one contemplates natural philosophy in this way, like you can't come to any other conclusion that there is this force that's evolving alongside human beings that like the absence, like that one cannot be present without the other and that by denying one, you're denying the other. So like the evolution of human morality. And and again, remember this is written in 1717 when the, you know, when the consequences of human morality were a little bit more like present people, especially in England, they had, I think, maybe 80 years before they fought the English Civil War, like they've been fighting in France for 300 years. Like the concept of immorality and, you know, humans committing violence and atrocity towards one another was a little bit more present in their minds. So the necessity for morality was also a little bit more press, uh, pressing um, than I think it is for us today in the way that we've kind of structured society. So I think this this debate was much more relevant to the society at that time than it may be now. Although I would argue uh, that yeah, I don't it's, know, it, it's different now. Sure, but in some ways it's more extreme. But I think you make a really good point. You know what we call today a hard atheist and soft atheist. There's there's different terms for these, but there's essentially like two type of atheists. The soft atheist is the person that sort of just rejects the religious dogmas of the Christian Church or the Jewish or Islamic uh, faiths where they don't believe in this sort of anthropomorphic God. Mm-hmm. It's not that they or the dogmatic structure that goes with it. Yeah, but they're not really they're not really rejecting the idea that there's something higher. They're mm-hmm. just rejecting um, the perspectives of organized religion. Harder atheists are are those people that literally like, there is no God. There's nothing higher than mm-hmm. us. Like it's every, stupid to even think that. Yeah, the, the universe is a cold place. You know, just with particles interacting and in random sort of mathematical ways and that's just what it is and we can kind of figure out how things work but there really is no soul or essence or anything transcendent to the entire universe Mm -hmm. and so i think it's when we go back to this term stupid atheist i think 
this is 300 years old, but they're basically saying hard atheists, yeah. not soft atheists. Because to be honest, I'm, you know, I'm a Freemason, and I, I can consider myself a, a soft atheist. I mean, in many ways, I have, you know, I wasn't brought up in religion, but I, if I had to take any of these religions literally, I would reject all those notions immediately. Mm-hmm. I, I do not believe in the literal interpretation of what God is in any of these religions. So in that sense, I could call myself an atheist, but I am in no way a hard atheist. Mm-hmm rejecting the idea of something higher than myself, higher levels of consciousness, higher levels of organization in the in the universe, in the cosmos. So I think Anderson here is in a very direct way is kind of separating out mm. stupid and non-stupid atheists, right? Well, and I think the second part really kind of, the second part of that phrase really speaks to what you're saying, the irreligious libertine. Because I think that's some that's some 18th century language for what is what we would now call like a scientific materialist. It's basically it's another way of saying like a hedonist or somebody that doesn't that that kind of believes in nothing beyond like personal pleasure or happiness. And I think that he makes a good point, and I would agree with him in the sense that that thinking is incompatible with masonry. I think that you know to to reject any kind of transcendence in the universe or or to promote the idea that the universe is an em- is a place empty of soul or intelligence that that exists outside of human beings uh doesn't fit with with masonry in this not in the sense that like you know you're a bad person for thinking that but in the sense that like what masonry does what it contemplates and why it performs its rituals is incompatible with the idea that we're just shouting into the void well, I mean, it, you know, Libertine is, is to, to pick somebody in history is like the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> you know, it's the perfect example of this word. It's just somebody that's, I mean, they just want to feel good and they don't really care about anything else. And, you know, there's these characters throughout history that they're just indulging in the physical pleasures um, and believe that that's really all that exists. I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, it's, it's, it's hedonism, but it's an extreme form of, of, of hedonism. It's a modern form of hedonism. Um, which is this disconnection from anything transcendent. And if Masonry is saying you have to believe in something higher, so you can't be a stupid atheist, and you have to follow the moral law, Masonry is setting some boundaries up, but in a very loose way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 there's, there's two um, outer extremes here, the libertine and the stupid atheist. And, and, and in both of those, those are like landmarks. Yeah. You know, like you go outside of that, you know, it's not this anymore. It's not this. It's not yeah. masonry anymore. And I think, I think with the libertine subject, um, it implies objectivity. You know, it, it 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 it's defining that there is objective morality, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Masonry isn't telling you what objective morality is, but it's saying it does exist. It insists and, on its existence. Yeah, yeah. And, and we need to try to find it and uncover. And I think. There's always this argument between people that are very subjective or relative in their in their views of the universe or objective. It's like both exist. Okay? Both exist. Like, yes, there there is objective reality. I mean, if you believe in science, you believe that there's objective um, existence. There mm-hmm. are real objects out there that we can, that we're sensing through our five senses. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we're subjective creatures living in an objective universe. Mm-hmm. So none of us are going to get it perfect. But it does exist. So I think if you reject the idea of objective reality, mm-hmm. then what's the purpose? And yes, if you if you if you believe there's no objective reality, then of course there can't be God. Mm-hmm. Of course there can't be anything higher. There can't there can't be level uh, higher levels of consciousness because really logic shouldn't even exist or mathematics because mm-hmm. 
if the universe is purely subjective, then there can be no facts. Mm-hmm. Well, then in in that case, like, what do you think the um, what do you think the opposite end of the opposite extreme of that same scale is like an over obsession with like objectivity that denies the subjective experience. Because I feel like that's also a way to fall into a a kind of like denial of a, of a transcendent force is to be like, well, there is only the objective and the subjective perspective of human beings is always flawed and can never correctly perceive (laughs) the universe. Therefore, you know, all ideas of God or transcendent experience are subjective, like hallucination. That's that's like the hard materialist viewpoint. Well, I mean, it's fascism. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, you. This is objective reality. There's no arguing it. It's just a fact. Nobody can have an interpretation of anything. That's mm-hmm. I mean, a tyrant. That's just somebody saying, well, what I believe is the truth for everyone else. So, yeah. I mean, freedom is critical. Of objectivity exists because since we're subjective creatures having an objective experience then we have to have the freedom to come to our own conclusions of what is going on so that we can get closer to the truth but as soon as you start mandating or you know forcing definitions down people's throats well then you're you're basically you're spitting in the face of objectivity mm-hmm. there's another point in this uh paragraph from anderson's constitutions here that i thought was interesting um if you would scroll down a little bit. Right there. Yeah. Um, so the part where he says, but though in ancient times, Masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was. Um, so I think this is kind of the point, you know, to address a different concern about Masonry and religion and atheism is that this is where the, the conspiracy theorists latch on and be like, oh, they don't actually believe in anything. They'll just do whatever is expedient to, to blend in in whatever country they find themselves because their true goal is subversion or they're truly atheists so they'll just pretend to be religious but the next line is of course that it's only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree leaving their particular opinions to themselves basically the idea that um i think it was uh i think it was mackey that wrote that there's a there's a religion like that god is equally present in the pious hindu temple as he is in the synagogue or the or the muslim um, mosque or the christian church and that, that that kind of conception of god is what um what masons kind of belong to which becomes a much more fluid thing i think as masons what we try to do is you know those are things people argue about you know i'll take a christian argument you know uh, baptism so you fully be immersed in water you know can you can you put some droplets on on the child's forehead or what age you can be baptized um you know do you have to be younger can you be a little older those type of things like those are the arguments that a mason doesn't get into. It's like mm-hmm. these are particulars, and you know every person will have their own flavor of religion and believe one thing is right over another. But those don't actually define our religious experiences in life. What we all agree on is that you know that there is something higher than us. That there are some transcendent truths. That we can become better people. That we can grow. That we can establish levels of solidarity with our fellow human beings. These are concepts that. Just about everybody's going to agree with it's. It's kind of like you're not going to find a society where it's illegal to, to it's not illegal to murder people. You know, like, mm-hmm. generally in law, like every society is going to agree, like yeah, don't kill people, um, don't and, take and, their stuff, and don't take their stuff, and then those type of things. Like so, I think you know, in a religious sense, that's what we're trying to do. Is you know, what, what is it that everybody agrees on? Because there's, there's actually more that we agree on than mm-hmm. we than we disagree. But I think the media and politics and 
power players try to get us all to focus on those little particulars at the end of the day aren't that important so i wonder then because now that i think about it i want like without a a conception of you know some kind of transcendent reality or or principle in the universe like can you really how do how do you rationalize a seeking of something higher than where you are without something transcendent to in like in relation to where you are like is it really like if you if you deny the existence of anything transcendent in life and you are a hard materialist like how do you seek to be to go beyond the material like how could that possibly be compatible with something like freemasonry which does encourage you know contemplation beyond the material if that doesn't exist then then how how can those two things be related to one another or exist in tandem well, I think, I think they don't. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, I how, I mean, if you're a staunch materialist, then morality is subjective, and if it's subjective, then why not kill people? Why mm. not steal from people? Now, you know, I know a lot of atheists, and they'll tell me like, "Oh no, you know, you know, as atheists, you don't need religion to be moral." Good without God. And I don't disagree that that yeah I mean I I know atheists and they're great people like I don't mm-hmm. think they're they're terrible but where did their morality come from mm-hmm. Well, I think you know this is an argument one one of our friends made the other day um, atheists are using borrowed ethics like yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know like they're 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 taking from Christianity and from all these world and they're kind of maybe they're taking out the so called superstition and the stories and all that. But at the end of the day, they're using the philosophical workings of religion for thousands of years as the backbone of their morality. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you can be uh, an atheist and be moral, but where are, the, are those morals coming where did from? That morality they're come coming from, from religion. Mm-hmm. Well, and because religion, I think, has you know, it, it has had plenty of time to do this, but it's, it's identified some some universal uh, particulars of the human experience. That like that can't be denied, whether or not you believe that there is there is or isn't a god or a force that's similar to a god in the universe, is that it has uncovered some universal principles or ethics in the universe. You know, principally, uh, don't kill people or take their stuff. Like like you said, that's at the bedrock of pretty much every civilization. Is that it's it's better to leave your neighbor alive and with his possessions than it is to not right to have somebody to cooperate with and. I wonder where I'm going with any of this. Well, well, I mean, I don't know where you're going with it, but I, 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 I what you made me think of when you're saying that is, um, you know, I think an argument for God, and again, I'm not talking, I'm not Christian or Muslim or any of these things, so I'm not arguing for any religion, but it's just the concept of something higher, which I think is what you're getting at. It's like, there's no such thing as spontaneous generation. In, in science, there's nothing comes out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Like th- that's never been observed. That's never been seen. That doesn't exist. Everything is preceded by an, uh, by a, uh, an effect or cause, right? So, you know, just like a child is born of parents, and, and we, can, we can take that backwards in time, everything is created by something else. So when we talk about the creator, between quotes, um, you know, the, athe- the atheist doesn't like this, but it's like, Again, take out the personality. I think mm-hmm. that's what they don't like. The anthropomorphization. Yeah, they, they don't like what religion has done with it. But at the end of it, like, where'd the universe come from? Well, it's the Big Bang. Well, what caused the Big Bang? Mm-hmm. You know, we can keep asking this question 
you know, infinite in, in, in ad infinitum. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, there's always something else that created something else, right? Mm-hmm. So we can't help but to then try to go back through time and space to, to trace back, you know, the creator of a creator of a creator of a creator. You know, so this is a process that we're uncovering, and that's why I think our concept of God evolves because we're always finding the next step, you know, like, oh, we found the Big Bang, and now those are the multiverse, mm. and we're going to keep going. I don't think there's an end to it, mm. but there's always something that created something else. Unless somebody wants to point out to me that spontaneous generation exists, but I have never found any evidence of it, and I haven't heard a single scientist say that it exists. It was actually disproven centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Well, except for the Big Bang. It's, it's give me this one moment of unexplainable magic, and I will explain material unfoldment from there. But but before the first cause, like there is nothing, and then there is something. Well, now we know there's something probably before the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because the Big Bang was discovered by a Jesuit mm-hmm. priest um, in the Catholic Church, and the Pope upon you know, I've got the name of the Pope, but the Pope that that you know heard this discovery from this Jesuit priest said, "Excellent." We have proven God. And the Jesuit priest said, well, I could be wrong. I mean, I, we, have, we, we have to figure out if my math is right and everything. But it's interesting that the Big Bang, one of the biggest scientific theories, was was discovered by a Catholic, and not only a Catholic, but a Jesuit Catholic, and that the Pope wanted to use this as evidence of the Creator. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the interesting? The scientific evidence of yeah. God. Yeah. So... All that being said, given that we've kind of just solved the atheist question of the past two <laughs> millennia, um, can an atheist be a Freemason? Can can somebody that identifies as a modern atheist, and I think I think we've laid out a good definition of what we mean by that, can a modern atheist become a modern Freemason? Yes. I mean, I, I think it depends on what type of atheist they are. Again, it's, are they soft? Are they hard? Uh, are they extreme? You know, I think every person we have to look at on an individual basis, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's no different. Like, well, if somebody was like an extreme evangelical Christian and wants to join the lodge, I would not think that's a good idea, actually, because they're coming in professing uh, objective reality. They're not there to learn from one another. They're there no. to preach the good Proclaim word. So the word of Christ, I yeah. think just as an extreme evangelical shouldn't be allowed, so should an extreme atheist not be allowed. Mm-hmm. But a soft atheist, like a, a soft theist? Mm-hmm. No, I think, you know, we meet on the center. So I, I, I don't actually think that bars you. It depends on the person exactly what they believe. I agree. And I, I think there's a, a, a very particular and specific personality trait that, that bars one from becoming a Freemason. And, and that's, a, that's the trait of not having any open questions in your life. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you have solved every problem and you're just ready to educate, then I don't think you're ready for masonry. I think I think masonry, the real requirement of masonry is that there remains at least one open question in one's soul. Like the idea that there is something in the universe that is still unresolved for you. Because if, if that's not present, well then, then what need do you really have for masonry? Like masonry is an organization that is attempting, at least in whatever way is truly possible, to try to answer these questions. And, and, and again, that's why it's like, there's no real like moral stricture to Freemasonry. There's no like, 
this is what you believe if you are a Freemason. Again, there, there are landmarks that kind of put you in a, a geographical vicinity, but there's no specific like, these are the, these are the tenets and dogma of Freemasonry. Like there, there are rituals that are specific and that well, don't change. Well, there's but. virtue. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like in our lot, last podcast, we talked about temperance and fortitude and, and, and um, <laughs> what are the other two? <laughs> uh, temperance, fortitude, justice, justice, and prudence. Yes, the four. I mean, it, it points us in a direction. But again, those are terms that we have to discover their meaning for ourselves. So mm-hmm. I think masonry points us to the mysterious. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what God really becomes, is an object of the mysterious. Like, we know there's something we don't know. And God represents that mystery to be solved. Mm -hmm. It doesn't represent a guy on a throne with lightning bolts ready to sleep (laughs) with the daughters of men, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, it's a a moral, perpetual motion machine. Like, it's kind of like, to me, it's like, you know, and I'm a huge sci-fi fan, so maybe that's why I have this analogy. But to me, masonry is like a... It's like a moral spaceship that is just kind of propelling us forward infinitely through the through the moral cosmos of like trying to figure out what our position is, and it, and built into it is a recognition that there like there really is no destination, and I feel like if you've solved all of the problems, like if for yourself whether that's through hard militant atheism or you know strict evangelical religious belief, then you've kind of already arrived at wherever it was you're going and you're not continuing to explore. I mean, human beings are explorers in a literal sense and in a, a metaphysical sense. Like, and if you're, not, if you're not moving in that direction, then it's not that masonry has no need for you, but you don't have any need for masonry. Well, it's kind of like, um, I mean, I, <laughs> I hate to put it this way, but it's like, you know, if you're an if you're extreme religious person or extreme atheist, frankly, I don't think there's any difference. The two. They're the same personalities. I think they have mental illness, actually. Like, they are so convinced of their truth that they have to convert everybody uh, by, if they could, by force mm-hmm. to their ideas. And I think that's a mental illness. You know, I think human beings are people that seek the unknown. Think of a three year old child asking why, 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 why. They just want to know the universe. And those people that already know the universe and don't ask why, something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Their brains don't work that well. And I think those extremes must be avoided. Otherwise, it will destroy the equilibrium of Freemasonry. So all of this being said, I I wonder then how you would respond, Brother Matias, to the, uh, I guess it would be the accusation of the the modern atheists. Like if we're such a open-minded and liberal organization, the Freemasons, how is it that we would uh, deny somebody entrance on the basis of their religious beliefs? Particularly, I think particularly in the case of like, you know, extreme atheism. I, th- I don't know if you really find that argument from a, from a religious person because they're not looking to join masonry. Do you mean like? In the sense that masonry is this kind of like, you know, um, uh, philosophically liberal organization that welcomes free thought. Like, how is it that we would deny a person membership on, on a philosophical basis? I mean, I don't, I think it's, it's a bit of criteria, you know, I don't. Each lodge has to vote whether to accept people. So we, we don't have a rule that says we don't accept atheists. I think that's, that's the key, at least our organization, Universal Commissary. There is no rule saying if they say they're an atheist, they can't join. It's a case-by-case basis. Everybody has to be interviewed. Everybody has to meet with members of the lodge. And, you know, they have to find some sort of affinity for Masonic ideals, right? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, we don't reject those people. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking for free thinkers. That's exactly what we're looking for. But 
the people that I, and I call them evangelical atheists, they're not free thinkers. They already got it all figured out. Mm-hmm. So if they're not free thinking, why should they come into our free thinking society? Exactly. And, and I think, too, that, you know, we, we have to make a distinction between our organization and, and masonry at large, because I think we are a unique case in the sense that, you know, I've heard it said from from our members and our leaders that like nobody's ever really rejected from masonry in the sense that like you can never join. It's just, it's just a question of like, can you join right now? Are you ready right now? And I, I think as an as an organization with professed philosophical beliefs, it is okay to say like, yeah, you're not ready to become a part of this just yet. But it's not that you'll never be. It's up to you. You might remember I did a Masonic Philosophical Society presentation in Chicago. <laughs> I uh, remember that very on, clearly. On Jung's synchronicities. And what was that guy's name that showed up? <laughs> I don't remember his last name, but I remember it was Tim from Bash, the Barrington area. Shout out to the Barrington area secular humanists. And this guy came with an agenda. He wasn't there to listen to the presentation, to ask questions. He was there to educate us on why all these ideas of the supernatural, synchronicities, and all these abstractions are just stupid, and that only new atheism can bring us happiness and peace. Which, and if I remember rightly, I don't think anything of what you were saying was really, like, incompatible with what he believed. Like, you could very easily make the interpretation that those were natural laws that you were talking about that just haven't been comprehended yet. I mean, the new atheist is trying to, to, to preach the good word of the scientific <laughs> method, which I love the scientific method. And, I, and I, I don't think science and religion are opposed to one another. Mm-hmm. But some of these new atheists, they're, just, they're there to educate us because we're just stupid children uh, lingering in superstition and darkness, right? Yeah. And, and I, I don't like that. I don't like people approaching one another with that type of mentality. Like, share your ideas with me. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't think there's a God, I'm willing to listen to it. And I think any Freemason should be able to explore these concepts without being offended or thinking they're uh, heretical or dangerous. Mm-hmm. Or you know? that they're under attack. Yeah, yeah no. But, you know, <laughs> what was his name again? Tim. Tim from Bachman. I'll never forget <laughs> it. It was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was very elucidating how he was so convinced it was true. And it, and it reminded me of people I've met in the past that were evangelical Christians that, you know— they basically would say to me, if you find one error in the Bible, Matthias, then the Bible isn't true. I'm like, wow, like, you're screwed. <laughs> but if you if you point out those errors to them, mm-hmm. they, they have a justification. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think one of the other things that, um, that I think is kind of coming out of the new atheist movement, and, and perhaps they wouldn't associate this with themselves, but I certainly do. And I think it is a product of of this kind of like, um, this bash style of atheism that we're talking about is that there's emerged, at least from what I've seen, a kind of like cultural nihilism that accompanies this, this atheism is like, everything is stupid. We've already, science has already figured everything out. Believing in anything supernatural is childish. The universe is empty and there's no inherent meaning to anything. And any organization that seeks after inherent meaning or objective good or objective morality is engaged not only in a childish delusion, but in a delusional force. Like, or not a delusional, but a destructive force for humanity. I I think one of the things that's so kind of like abrasive of the kind of bashing style of atheism is that like, not only are your beliefs stupid, but belief is dangerous to human beings. Like, believing in anything but objective materialism 
leads to danger and destruction, and we should avoid it at all, at all costs and not even contemplate these questions anymore. I think that's why we have to separate, you know, sort of atheism from new atheism because this new push here mm. is, is exactly what you're saying. It's this concept that it's fine being an atheist, but really the new atheist has to go out and convince all these stupid people that they're wrong. Mm. You know, so that's why I call them evangelical atheists because now they got to go out and tell everybody how they're wrong just like evangelical Christians go around telling everybody they're wrong. So really these are the same people. Mm. These are the same people. Two different religions. Uh, new atheism is a religion, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't think it's anything but. You know, and it's funny because you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to form communities where they have kids. Like, <laughs> atheism kind of, plus. Yeah, like Sunday school, yeah. but it's for atheists. Yeah. They're trying to mimic the structure of church because they recognize, and I've had discussions with new atheists, that what's lacking is the sense of community. A sense of of getting oh, together, that. yeah, and, and and religion just has like a, a corner on this market, so they say. Um, but it's interesting that they're tra- basically trying to create like they're literally like kind of like I wouldn't call them churches, but they're like these places that you go to every week with your family and you hear the good word of atheism, and, and it's like going to school and having Sunday class, and you know, you know, maybe even singing some songs like you would at an evangelical church. Very, very interesting. Well, I think that you're kind of like that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here is that like. You know, I, I understand where they're coming from in the sense that, like, when you discover something that you think to be the, the truth of the universe, like, I get that you're excited about it, but destroying the moral underpinnings of society <laughs> to promote it is really, like, I think kind of dangerous. And, and, and even on a small scale, it, it creates a void that humanity, like, naturally has to fill. So, like, so yeah, you get rid of, like, all these churches and dogmas and things that you think are so dangerous to human society. But then you immediately start creating the very same structures that you just work so hard to destroy. And I, and I think that there's a kind of, like, you know, a, 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 a unpondered or an unthought-out kind of ramification to this kind of thinking that, like, if we just pull the moral rug out, of, out from under humanity we're going to find ourselves falling into a pretty deep hole. And I, I guess my question is that, like, like, what happens to a society if you completely destroy dogma? Like, I understand there are some bad things about dogma, but when we completely destroy those structures and don't replace them with anything, what happens to us? Well, first of all, I don't think the new atheists are... are trying to get rid of dogma it's just it's 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 new dogma but they know? would say that they were of course because dogma is attached to religious institutions and their ideas but dogmas you can have scientific dogmas you can have philosophical dogmas I, I think at the end this is a real interesting question brother axel because this idea that we can rid the world of dogma is a fallacy there will always be dogma these dogmas are beliefs that people that hold and we as individuals must have beliefs we will always have beliefs even if you believe in mathematics and you believe in reason and you believe in science and you believe in the scientific method, these are beliefs. You could say that they're better beliefs than religious beliefs or vice versa, but they're all beliefs. I think what Freemasonry is trying to get to when it says it's adogmatic like our organization is that we are trying to create an environment where you can pick your dogmas. You know, a child will be indoctrinated by their parents. You know, a church indoctrinates its members. Uh, political parties indoctrinate their members. A society, a country, indoctrinates its citizens. But at the end of the day, I think Freemasonry is trying to say, look, you've been indoctrinated. 
you need to realize that. Go find what you like or mm-hmm. what resonates with you and accept those as your dogmas and be ready to discard those dogmas when you find better dogmas. Mm-hmm. But a- at any given moment, you're filled with dogmas and your words, your justifications, your actions are all based on the dogmas. The question is, were you programmed by somebody else or were you able to reprogram yourself? Well, and I think that, um, you know, it said that masonry is a building craft. And so, like, what are we building? We're not erecting awesome Gothic cathedrals anymore. So what is it that we're working with? I think the beliefs and the dogmas are the bricks that we're building up the society with. Like, I I think in masonry, there's a kind of built-in recognition of the necessity of dogma to the functioning of civilization. Like, we have to believe in certain things in order to make society work. Like, we all have to kind of have some general basis of belief or this doesn't work. And discarding everything without an attempt to, like, really start over, like, that that doesn't work. And and throwing away all of tradition, that doesn't work either. We're, we're building um, a, a transgenerational kind of thing here. It's a, it's a big project, and to just rip out the foundation stones from underneath us isn't really progress. But... Mm-hmm. I, like I agree, like we should always be casting new bricks. Like we're always making new stones, but the necessity of stones for a building is something that I don't think we necessarily need to question. Like we do need building materials. We should be always looking to refine those materials to make them stronger and more long-lasting. But the idea that we don't need materials upon which to base our beliefs is kind of I think more dangerous than you know, religious fanaticism. At least they're, at least they have belief. Now you're just picking one side there, brother Axel. <laughs> That's I mean, true. I think, I think fundamentalism on the other side is equally as dangerous. You might prefer one based on your own dogmas, but they're, they're equally dangerous to, uh, creating a society of censorship and, and non-freedom. There's a quote here from, from Benjamin Franklin. This is great. He says, quote, I do not know in what God I believe or how he was formed or, or does he exist? I only believe, I only know that I believe in something. And I think that's really like, that should be a motto for Freemasonry. Like, (laughs) all I know is that there's something out there. I believe in something. I believe in mystery. I believe in the unknown. I believe I don't have all the answers. But I believe in that. And that, I think, is a critical belief to, it's not just to Freemasons, to to every human being. I mean, it's it's the mysterious that, that pushes us forward. You know, space travel, exploration of oceans, you know, uh, of the human body. Every realm of of scientific pursuit, of philosophical pursuit, of religious pursuit is in being a traveler, being an adventurer, of going into the unknown and trying to figure out more about who we are and about the universe. And so when, when Benjamin Franklin says, I only know that I believe in something, it's beautiful. That's what it is. And that's the building blocks. Mm -hmm. The building blocks of what we figured out along this journey. And that's why Masons are travelers. Yeah, I really like that that point that like Masons are moving towards something. I mean, really, it's kind of the it's the recognition that human beings are moving through space towards an end, and that Masons as travelers are are kind of those that kind of realize the transit and are at least trying to pick a destination. Maybe they haven't found one or, or, you know, it changes from time to time. But there is at least an effort mm-hmm. towards that and to, like, to reach somewhere. Perhaps with the knowledge that you never really will and that kind of the journey is the entire point. But at least that you're moving towards something. In the Masonic world, I mean, there's basically two centers of masonry. There's Anglo-Saxon Freemasonry that comes out of England, which is what American Freemasonry is. 
and you you find this this masonry in, in India and Australia and Canada, basically where the Roman, wherever the where, British Empire yeah, was. I was about to the say Roman the Roman Empire, Empire the <laughs> British Empire. Sorry, uh, and then you have continental Freemasonry, which basically comes out of France, and you know to the uneducated Mason or or, or person that's not a Mason. They're going to basically say this is, you know, this is religious Freemasonry from England and atheist Freemasonry from mm-hmm. uh, England, especially the Grand Orient of France. This goes back to an event that took place in 1877. Um, so there was a Grand Assembly and, and all the delegates of, of the leaders of the lodges gathered in the Grand Orient. And they made a decision, a vote, to lift the mandatory obligation to refer to the great architect of the universe in lodge rituals. Now... I've been in in rituals in Paris under the Grand Orient of France. They didn't remove the term "the Great Architect of the Universe." That's I've heard this from from English and American Freemasons. That is ignorance. They still talk about the Great Architect. They just don't they don't have the emphasis on sort of the religious connection with that term to God. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to hear the term God really a lot uh, in the Grand Orient rituals, but they still have references to the Great Architect of the Universe. So at this point, many of the Grand Lodges, the American Grand Lodges, the Grand Lodge of England, they cut off um, their recognition for the Grand Orient. And so the Grand Orient to this day is its own island of Freemasonry. It's huge. Mm-hmm. And there are Grand Orients of Belgium and Italy and so forth. Um, but continental Freemasonry has been isolated from essentially a, a, a large part of the world. And this is because of this decision in 1877. But I, I want to make the point that they didn't say that you couldn't believe in God and be a Mason in France. Mm-hmm. They're just saying, we're not going to ask you. We're not going to make this mandatory that you believe in God. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes back to Anderson's Constitution where they're going to say, well, we're going to leave those particular questions to each person. And we'll just agree on what we can agree on and, and not fight with, with these little things. And, and so in some ways, it's kind of a, a stretch back to Anderson's Constitution, to the original formation of the First Grand Lodge. And in many ways, I think that this wasn't a bad move. Now, I have a friend in the Grand Orient, and he says, well, you also don't tell people you believe in God because you'll get made fun of. And he's like, he, he started going back to church, and he said he saw another person uh, in another pew nearby, which was another Mason. They kind of looked at each other, but they never brought it up because, you know, if it got out that they were going to church all the time, you know, there might be some, some discrimination in that opposite mm-hmm. way. So the Grand Orient, I think, maybe has gone too far from that decision in 1877 but i don't i don't think it was necessarily a bad decision no and what like with any schism of of belief you know battle lines are inevitably drawn and they're becoming and they're becoming extremists on both sides and then you know sides are taken and and there becomes a a kind of an us against them mentality that's somewhat ingrained even within an organization like freemasonry but i mean i i would agree with with the with the french decision here that like it's the ultimate expression of liberty of thought to say we're we're not we're going to make it part of the rules of the organization that we don't ask you because like that question in itself was much more contentious in 1877 than it is in 2020 like asking what somebody's uh, religious affiliation was and whether or not they believed in god was a much bigger deal in the 19th century than it is in the 21st I guess it still is in France that, you know, but I, I think that's more of an emergence of a culture that's taken place in a form of masonry. You know, and, and there was, a, uh, I guess, an equal and opposite culture that emerged in, in British masonry, which was 
you know, again, with the historical context of 1877, this is the this is the Third Republic of France, which has become a very radical Republican, you know, leaning uh, in the classical sense of the word, Republican leaning form of government and culture and in England at the time is still a very staunch Victorian monarchy mm-hmm. and they don't like all these ideas of, of you know free thought and the, ch- and the separation of church and state and the uh, the waning of ecclesiastical and, and monarchical power so it was again like a, because Freemasonry at the time tended to attract prominent members of society and if if that organization is promoting a, a political radicalism that you don't want to uh, encourage, then you start to isolate those areas, and that and that form of masonry kind of falls out of favor from the English, who were very much attached to their um, their monarchy and their and their system of government, and didn't want that challenged by the kind of more radical political ideas that were emerging in France. So this was a kind of a perfect excuse to kind of you know make this artificial schism between them and be like, oh well, they're a bunch of irreligious atheist libertines over there that just want to destroy the the good order of society. <laughs> it is a great point, brother Axel, because you know human beings, whether Freemason or not, there's always these political uh, agendas, right? Mm-hmm. And that was 1877 marked a, a wonderful spot. But you know, to to our old listeners out there. Uh, the Grand Orient of France is a wonderful organization. It's very different from American Freemasonry, uh, even from Universal Co-Masonry or from the Grand Lodge of England. Uh, but it has its place in Masonry, and, and, and that's the beauty of Masonry. Why, why do we all have to be the same? Mm-hmm. Let there be differences. That's part of the freedom of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. So uh, we should at no time believe that they are not Masons or that they're clandestine. That, that's nonsense. They're not irregular or non-mainstream. They're huge. They're a massive organization in France, and they're doing good works. You know, the, the irony of, of American Masons calling Continental Masons irregular, like to, to, to see an American organization so fervently supporting the aims of the British Empire is, is kind of ironic to me that like you have all these, you know, staunchly American uh, organizations that you know, unwittingly are, are kind of echoing the, uh, the political sentiments of the British Empire, you know, even, even after the revolution. Here's a, a thought experiment that I just thought of. What if American Freemasonry had followed the steps of its French brethren, mm. which, which Could would, have have been in, would have been in yeah. concert with the revolution? So what if American lodges were like continental lodges, which, by the way, you know, also called liberal Freemasonry because it's more progressive and et cetera. Uh, not liberal in the sense of American politics, but liberal mm-hmm. in the sense of being progressive and opening its door to men and women and, and having more discussion and debate on all sorts of scientific and, and political subjects. But again, back to the scenario. Mm-hmm. What if the, the, the 18th, 19th century, we had seen more French masonry in America? I wonder if our republic of the United States of America would be a completely different country today. Well, okay, so... <laughs> I have a theory, and it's not, I'm certainly no academic researcher, and this is not backed up by any uh, hard scholarly research uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I have a theory that, and it's, I'm certainly not the first person to make this connection, but that Freemasonry in England was used um, as a tool of the British Empire, that wherever the British Empire wanted to go, Freemasonry also went because, and and not as some kind of like you know organized conspiracy, but but by the fact that prominent uh, civil servants and military officers 
were Masons. They were Freemasons from the United Grand Lodge of England. And as England kind of went out and conquered the world and established her colonies, these Masons were often in positions of leadership in these new colonies. And some of the first things that they would do is whether it was a traveling lodge in the military or, you know, in more established kind of city centers of these colonies, is they would establish Masonic lodges and they would bring together the prominent members of whatever the society was that they were colonizing into the Masonic lodge to integrate them more quickly with British society. And I think the kind of attachment to American masonry that was maintained by the English was at least in part a reaction to the revolution and a, and a expression of the desire to retain American society and culture within the umbrella of the British Empire to, because America was a vast colony at the time that was becoming more prominent in the world. And to have that ideologically separated from England would have been a further blow than just to be militarily and geographically isolated from the British Empire. The, like, basically, that promoting British Freemasonry in America was a way to keep America ideologically connected with the ideas of the British aristocracy and the elite, and the elite who rule British Freemasonry. Like the, the head of British Freemasonry is a member of the royal family. So like that cultural connection did exist. And I wonder, to your point, that if there was a more continental influence after the revolution, that it might have gone in a completely different direction. I mean, I think absolutely. You know, I think, I mean, if you look at like George Washington and, and right after you have John Adams and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson as rivals, there's, there's this idea that America should aid France in its revolution against, you know, the monarchy. And so there's two forces in America right after the revolution because of the French revolutions within a decade mm -hmm. after our revolution. And, and it comes to be this, this argument, should we aid them as they aided us? Because anybody that doesn't think that, you know, it was the French that secured our victory against the English doesn't know anything about American history. Like mm -hmm. without French support, we would have lost. Um, and so people like Thomas Jefferson wanted to you know, continue the revolution. Like, you know, the, the, these ideas of liberty, equality, fraternity should be expanded not only within America, but everywhere. And, and we should go back and help the French. And then there were these people like, oh, no, no, we're still, you know, we may be Americans now, but we're, we're still British and we have to support that type of idealism in the world. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that did win out. And I, I, I actually think that American masonry uh, choosing the route of staying with the... Um, English style of Freemasonry was a huge part of that because Masonry was so important in the early days and so many men were part of those lodges that it influenced their way of thinking and mm -hmm. of governance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah, I think if we had gone the way of, of continental Freemasonry, I think our country would look very different than it does today. Well, and I think this is an interesting place to bring up um, universal co-Masonry because the predecessor to co-masonry, Le Droit Humain, was formed under the Grand Orient of France. Like it, it comes from um, the lineage of continental Freemasonry, but it was at least the the um, the federation that eventually became the American Federation of Human Rights and now Universal Co-masonry was definitely influenced by coming to America at the turn of the 20th century. So there's kind of like a mixing between the the continental ideas 
but then it is encountering the culture that was shaped by this close proximity to English masonry. So when, um, you know, when Louis Wazoo arrives here in the very early 1900s and starts opening lodges, he's got these continental ideas, him and Muzzarelli, they have these very continental ideas of Freemasonry, but they're encountering a fraternal body that's also heavily influenced by um, you know, traditional kind of English masonry, like the, like the men that joined, the men and women that joined um, the very early uh, American lodges of La Joie Humaine, were con- their parents and grandparents had been American masons who were really English masons, so that you kind of have this blending of cultures. I agree with that, but there's but a lot of the members of, of the American Federation of Human Rights at the turn of the 20th century were minors. They, mm-hmm. they were immigrants. actually, they're all immigrants from you know, from Eastern Europe, from from the mines of France, etc. And and what you bring up is interesting because Universal Cremation, we're a small organization. Uh, many people profess to want the things that we do here. Many male craft masons like, oh, you guys debate and you do this and you do that. And that's what we really want. But our organization isn't huge because liberal Freemasonry or continental Freemasonry, which we are a mix of both English and French masonry. We're an amalgamation of both. But still, like, America in general is resistant to these European ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Americans are still very British. They're very <laughs> English, whether they want to admit it or not. And I think um, Le Droit Humane, Universal Commissary, our difficulty in expanding quickly is a result of different mindsets. That kind of old friction of, of the two ideas coming in contact mm-hmm. with each yeah. other. Yeah. Well, well I, and of atheism, because. Mm-hmm. You know, our organization is far more open-minded. We allow all sorts of people to join, while American Freemasonry still remains sort of a bastion of Judeo-Christian ideas. Mm -hmm. And we have some of those Judeo-Christian ideas, but we have many other ideas. We have Eastern ideas, and Mm -hmm. we, you know, we have Indigenous people ideas, and all Mm -hmm. these different concepts is kind of a melting pot of ideas. And I think I, I hate to make this such a general comment because I don't think everyone's like this, but I think in general America is can be in some ways, very close-minded mm-hmm. when it comes to ideas. You know, you you look at politics, people talk about um, European ideas, and it's me like, oh, those are those are communist ideas, those are socialist <laughs> ideas, and it's like, mm-hmm. well, some of them are, and certainly some of them are not that way. But, mm-hmm. you know, Americans can be very suspicious of other um, political systems of different philosophies. They can, they can be a little narrow-minded, mm-hmm. and I think that's, the result of that is a, a harder level of expansion for our type of organization. I think our uh, uh, viewpoint can be uh, nicely summed up in this anonymous... Um, you, you mean us, like Universal Co-Masonry? Yes, uh, Universal Co-Masonry. Um, you found this, this great little uh, apocryphal story here that I want to read. Uh, it goes, A witty Frenchman was asked once, Do you believe in God? And his answer was, What do you mean by God? Nay, do not answer. For if you answer, you define God. A God defined is a God limited. And a limited God is no God. And listening to that story, I can understand the English frustration with the French <laughs> conception of God. Having lived in England for eight years and understanding the culture, I can understand why this would be a problem for English Masons. Well, I think this perfectly defines universal co-masonry. That's why we don't have any hard rules on whether we accept atheists or not. It goes, again, to each individual and exactly what do they believe. Are they seeking the highest? And in our Declaration of Principles, we say the following. That in accordance with the ancient declaration of Freemasonry, the Supreme Council asserts the existence of an absolute and all-pervading creative principle under the title, The Great Architect of the Universe. 
this is very vague and and does not pin down any sort of belief in one god or another mm-hmm. or any concept or how you would describe this. It's just we believe that there's something out there that's absolute and that it's creative and therefore we can discern its understanding. Is it a he? Is it a she? Is it a what? Is it this or that? It doesn't really make a mm-hmm. difference. It's just, again, you need to believe in something higher than yourself. And I think this leads into the motto of our organization, that we work to the glory of God and the perfecting of humanity. Not the perfection of humanity, uh, like the French Masons, but the perfecting of humanity. What do you think this means? Because it, it can seem very religious, but mm-hmm. I actually think it's not. Well, I think it's quite... Uh, it's it's very open, and, and, and not in the sense of like avoiding the question necessarily, but in the sense of like... To me, this statement encompasses all the aspirations of humanity. And, and maybe that sounds kind of ridiculous, but like I think, you know, to the glory of God and the perfecting of humanity, that is a one sentence summation of all of the work that human societies across the planet and at all times have been attempting in some way or another to do. And that masonry is a distillation of the effort of civilization and that's why it can be so easily installed in any country or belief system or religion around the world you know not in a conspiratorial sense but in the sense that it plugs into humanity Mm -hmm. because these are kind of the two aspects of humanity the perfecting of humanity is the building up of technological society it's the building up of of um architecture and the arts and, and all these kind of like terrestrial earthly things the sciences things like that whereas the glory of god encompasses the religious aspirations of humanity it's the building of monasteries the developing of religious traditions like these these kind of two pathways of human life to either kind of recluse yourself into the life of a monk or to you know delve into humanity and contribute something like these are really the two paths that human beings take in expressing themselves in a very in a very distilled down kind of sense like these to me are the twin aspirations of humanity and masonry is an, is an attempt in my opinion to unite those two paths to walk to to make them the same road i think that's the unique nature of, of universal co-masonry because i agree with you 100 percent. the glory of god is the path of faith and religion and the perfecting of humanity is the path of philosophy and science and really if you look at english freemasonry american freemasonry it's looking more to the glory of god but if you look at continental masonry or liberal Freemasonry in Europe, it is working to the perfecting of humanity or the perfection of humanity. And as universal Freemasonry, we're saying, no, you got to do both. There's a religious aspect to our lives and there's a scientific aspect. And they're not contrary to one another. They actually work together hand in hand. And so I think it's actually the statement, the glory of God and the perfecting of humanity is both ends of that are exactly the same. There's just two different ways of saying the same thing which is working towards something greater. Because glory is a word that means high renown or honor won by notable achievements, right? And the perfecting of humanity is the process of perfecting. We actually don't believe in the utopian perfection. We believe that we're working just in the process of perfecting, of every day becoming stronger and better and greater, you know, of solving our problems as a humanity. So universal co-masonry takes the middle path, combines the religious and the scientific and believes only by doing both can we achieve the ultimate 
act of perfecting ourselves in the universe. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Clomasonry. Universal Clomasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.